And Lord, would you help us and encourage our hearts as we look to your word this morning. I pray for the one who is downcast today that you would lift them up. And I pray that we would grow together in grace and comfort. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, a major theme of 2 Corinthians has been comfort, and this comfort, we, we got to understand what that is before we re- refer to it. You see that one of the very first words of this passage in uh, verse 5 or verse 6 is about comfort, and some of the last words are about comfort. What is comfort? Right? So, so comfort is, uh, this is a word we learned when we were studying chapter 1, but I want to remind you of the definition. Comfort is a portable strength. A portable fortress, right? Portable strength that comes from God. You say, well, why do you say it comes from God? You can look in two places. Look at verse 6. You might want to put your finger there. God who comforts the downcast. God is the kind of God who comforts the downcast. And we could also look back at chapter 1, verse 3. The God of all comfort will comfort us, right? A portable strength that comes from God in the midst of afflictions, can I just say, if you're not walking in the midst of afflictions, very few of us look to, to God for help and comfort. We kind of move through life, don't we? So God sometimes allows afflictions in our life just to, so that he can show us that in the midst of our afflictions, he is the God who comforts. So comfort is a portable strength that comes from God in the midst of afflictions Though our every earthly resource is drained, so that we can strengthen others. And the purpose of that, again, back in chapter 1 and verse 4. So once again, I'll read it for those of you that are intensely interested in definitions and writing this down. Comfort is a portable strength that comes from God in the midst of afflictions. Though our every earthly resource is drained, so that we can strengthen others. All right? So now we're up to verse 6, okay? We, we see that God, and, and really here's what I want to say to us as our first kind of getting our heads and brains wrapped around this. God is the source of comfort. I know we're not setting the world on fire with, you know, new ideas here this morning, but I want you to hear that and understand that. God is the place we turn for help when life is difficult. He, he is the, the, the source of comfort. And look who he comforts, but God, he comforts the downcast. And we, we made the point in, uh, already, if you're lifted up in life and you're at a high place and you're trucking through and you're okay, that's a place where if you're like me, you don't turn to God for help that often in those moments. But, but life does weigh us down. Look at all the ways that Paul was downcast, and maybe you'll identify with him. Back in verse 5, even if we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. And one way we become downcast is when we are out of energy. We're at the end of ourselves. We're exhausted. I think of moms and dads, but especially moms. I think of single parents who are working it and they're going to work and they're preparing meals and they're helping with homework and they're raising kids and they're sleeping little and they're going back to work the next day and it's hard all the time. 
And maybe you're not a single parent or maybe you're not a parent at all, but you identify with this idea of just like out of gas, totally physically exhausted. It's one of the ways that you and I can identify and understand and become downcast. But Paul doesn't stop there. Maybe you are that person. Look at verse 5 again. We, uh, we were afflicted at every turn and there was fighting without. And another way we become downcast is when there is relational tension outside of us, all around us, all the time. And there's no way we can go to escape it. Sometimes it comes in the most unusual places. Do you know that Paul, he didn't, he didn't complain about the beatings and the affliction and the problems that came from Rome and from the legal systems and from the, trouble, from the governing bodies around him, but it's almost as if he was saying, look, when there's tensions and relational problems and upheaval in the group of called out ones in the church, that's when it is so exhausting for me. That's where he's at. And he has ministered to the Corinthians and there was this public dispute and there's this argument and fight and he's distanced from them and it is just exhausting for him because he, he says, and by the way, I think that was a, you know, a, there, there's a lot of like, uh, you know, here today, gone tomorrow, there's a lot of like euphemisms and kind of different things we say like that, little coined speeches. Uh, and I think that's exactly what that is at the end of verse five, in Paul's day, fighting within or, yeah, fighting without, fear within. I think that was a coined phrase of the day. It's one of those like, okay, outside of me, no peace. Inside of me, by the way, that's the third way we can feel downcast. Given to fear. Just so low and hurt and broken by what's going on in the world around me, looking ahead to a future where nothing that I've done in the past is probably going to come to any fruition at all. That's Paul's concern. What if I did all of this work and taught this people and led this church in Corinth and it comes to nothing? And Paul is saying, there's moments when I'm just, I'm just taken up by these fears within that the future is going to yield no fruit whatsoever and all the work that I'm putting in is going to be for nothing. And if you're that place this morning where you are downcast and you are absolutely physically exhausted and there's been fightings and relational tensions and problems around you or on the inside there have just been these fears that you've been given to and you think that there's a future coming that God really probably doesn't care that much about and nothing's going to turn out anyway and you're in a good place because we have the kind of God who comforts the downcast. Incidentally, can I just uh, remind you, uh, if you're in that place today and you haven't turned to ask God for help yet, that's your first step. I think that there are so many of us that think that what God wants me to do is keep, you know, I'm down on the battlefield and what God wants me to do is keep fighting. I need to come up with a new, I got to writhe and work my way out of this and come up with the next step. I've got to do something else. And can I just tell you, if you're still doing something else that you think is going to be the key to the situation, you're not downcast yet. God wants to put you in a position where Psalm 4610 be still and know that I am God plus Nothing, plus nothing. Not still writhing, not still trying to work an angle. Here's what I tend to do. I, I, I cry, out, uh, cry out to God, and then I send another text. 
Maybe that'll fix it. Uh, Cry out to God and then Facebook stalk and see what's really going on in picture seven states over. Cry out to God and then get out my credit card because I don't know how he's going to do it, but I'm going to have to do this myself. And can I just tell you, that's not the picture we see here. The picture we see here is this person who is down on the battlefield and he has, or she has, stopped trying to work the situation in his own plan. Stop trying to take responsibility for something that God has called you to not. And so uh, here's what I see Paul doing here. He got low and, and then he got lower still. And he was still before God and said, Lord, I can't do this. Only you can. He cried out, and then he waited. You know Psalm 40, or excuse me, Isaiah 40, 31? Wait on the Lord, and he will renew your strength. And I think what we honestly think sometimes is I'm going to wait on the Lord in the sense that I'm going to, I'm going to tack on a prayer someplace in my day. But I've got to keep working it. I've got to keep working it. I keep, keep doing it. I've got to keep doing it. I've got to keep trying. I've got to keep efforting. And God delights to put us in a place. Look where Paul was here. Paul was at a place of uh, out of energy. He was downcast. He had no energy. He was distanced geographically from the situation. He had no influence whatsoever in the situation. And there was no communication. Listen, if God has you in the place where you are exhausted, where you are distant, and where you are waiting for good news, you're downcast. Can I just encourage you this morning? Stop wiggling. Stop trying to do it yourself. Stop taking on a burden that God has not called you to take on. Who is supposed to take care of the Corinthian church? It's not Paul. It's God. And so when Paul got it in his head that he should take a break from all of that strain and stress. He stopped his texting. He stopped his Facebook stalking. He, he stopped thinking of all the ways that he would do it if he were God. He, he, he left it up to the Lord. God put Paul in this position of lowness, of distance, and delayed communication. And if you're in that place today, my friends, you're in a good place. God brings comfort to the downcast. Well, we could talk a little bit about how God does that, but I want to keep moving with you this morning. I'm going to say some obvious things. How does God bring comfort to me when I'm that low? You know that he works in the power of the Holy Spirit to do this. You know that he, by his Spirit, if we, are, if we belong to him, the Holy Spirit lives in us and ministers the presence of Jesus Christ in your life all the time if you'll stop and be cognizant of that ministry. One of the ways I like to, be, to, to tune into that and to really understand that is to get alone, and I know what some of you are thinking. The whole problem is I can't get alone, right? But if you can get alone and you can have some scripture that you set your mind on to remind you that the Holy Spirit is, is ministering the person of Jesus to you, As big as your problems are, the resurrected, all-powerful Jesus Christ lives in you. And if you will connect with him on a daily basis, you will be so encouraged. 
I have a couple of songs right now. Maybe you, you're like that too, where there's like a season for certain songs in your life. But right now is a season for certain songs in my life. I love that I just turn up and I consider them. And, I, and, and you know what? When I see how powerful and good and huge and caring and loving God is, it's as if he is Everest and all of my problems heaped in a huge you know, a mound on the ground become this crazy little tiny molehill in comparison to the greatness of the person of the resurrected Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is ministered to by Jesus himself, who is risen from the dead and is our only payment for sin. And he's ministered to by the work of, of the, the Spirit. Well, he leads us into truth, does the Spirit. And by the way, uh, uh, how he begins to comfort us, John 16, 7 says that the Holy Spirit ministers Jesus in our life. John 16, 13 says that... Uh, that the, the Holy Spirit will lead us into the truth. And so here we are on the battlefield, down for the count, and we can, we can uh, meditate. And in essence, what we're doing is we're, we're raising our hand on the battlefield saying, okay, God, I'm done writhing. I'm done figuring this out. I'm done fixing the problem. Come help me. And God comes out by his Spirit with portable strength and he ministers the person of Jesus to you, and he, he can open the word of God to you, and there's some passage of scripture that will minister deeply to your heart. And, and then we see in this text today a way that God ministers comfort to us as well. How does God bring comfort to the lowly? Check out verse uh, 6. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Good Christian friends involved in ministering with you are a great source of comfort. But not only that, look at verse 7. He even says that. And not only by his coming, I mean, that's enough, right? I'm out of strength. I'm broken relationally. Titus came. But not only did he come, he came with good news about what was happening in Corinth. The Corinthians had said no to the false teacher. They had said no to going out under, from underneath the umbrella of God's protection. They had said no to going out from under the umbrella of what God's word says about God and about how we ought to behave before God. They said no to that influence, and they had repented from that, and they are renewing their affection for Paul. We love you, Paul, and we send word via Titus to make sure you know that we are loyal to you. Man, look at that chance, what I'm calling it. It's a chain of comfort that comes because the Corinthians encouraged Titus, and Titus encouraged Paul. Hey, um, can I really encourage you? Stories about the power and the work of Jesus Christ in this world are substantially used by God to change lives. And if you have a story of something that God is doing in you and through you by his grace, a story in your life, I could really encourage you to spend some time alone and reflect upon what it is that God has done to show himself powerful in your life. And then, stage two, tell that story to someone. Start talking about 
what God's doing in your life. Start talking about a sin that he has relieved you from or, or delivered you from. Start talking about how God has provided for you. Start talking about a bitterness, a bitter attitude that you had that God is freeing you from. Start talking about how you are, are learning just on the leading edge, just the beginning edge of learning how to cry out to God and stop writhing and wiggling on the battlefield and wait for his portable strength to come as the Spirit ministers the very person of Jesus to you. Start telling those stories. Dads, nothing could be better than for your kids to begin to hear dad talk about delivery that comes from a strong God. Young adults, Working in the workplace, don't wait for invitations. Don't tiptoe around the issue. You're a young adult in the workplace. Speak frankly to those people around you who will listen about how God's at work in your life. He is strongly at work. And one of the ways that comfort comes in this world is when our mouths are freed and we begin to talk to one another about what God's doing in our lives. So we spend way too much time talking about the Green Bay Packers and talking about baseball and talking about stuff that doesn't matter that much. Now, let let me back up. Baseball matters, (laughs) but not that much, right? But how much time are we spending talking about the strength of God? And I can't tell you how many marriages will be turned around when we start saying, you know what? I'm weak and I'm broken and I'm I'm, I'm down for the count. But I, I'm calling out to God. And I'm waiting for him to come. And I'm not going to ride. I'm not going to try to fix you anymore. I'm not going to try to tell you how to do it anymore. I'm not going to even tell God how to fix you anymore. I'm going to wait on the battlefield for the strength of God to come minister to me and strengthen me. And so the source of comfort is, is God himself. Well, you see that there's a grounds for comfort too. But there's a, a place of comfort, and, uh, and that place of comfort we start picking up on in verse 8. And in, from verses 8 down to verse 13, we see one of the most concentrated, specific teachings in Scripture about the doctrine of repentance. And so we're going to have to dive into that just a little bit today, okay? And so let me just remind you again where we are in this whole concept of comfort. Comfort comes to Paul when there's relational peace in the church. And relational peace comes in the church when we are a church of good repenters. And so you see the way that that repentance, corporate repentance here, is tied to comfort for one another and encouragement for one another when when we are exhausted and when we're downcast. And so we pick it up in verse 8. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I already told you about that. And he wrote a harsh letter to them. And he says, I, I don't regret that. Though I did regret it. For I see that letter grieved you, though only for a while. Here's my read on that. That basically, he was waiting for news from, from Titus. He wasn't getting it. And while he was waiting good news, he thought, maybe it's bad news. And while he was waiting the news, he made himself believe he was fearful about the future. And he told himself, maybe I've gone too far. Maybe I said too much. Maybe I didn't say enough. Maybe I've lost them. And so that's what he's getting at there in verse 8 when he talks about, you know, I, I, I was grieved because I didn't know if the letter had its effect. 
But now I see the letter has its effect, and I am really encouraged because the effect is even better than I thought it could be, okay? I did not regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. Verse 9, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. What is this godly grief? Can I just encourage you, church? There are some of us that have been following after Jesus for a long time, and we are still privately asking ourselves when no one's looking, have I repented of my sin and placed my faith and trust in Jesus Christ? And that's a good place to be. Have I done that? Is it real for me? Because like everything, Satan puts a counterfeit out there. And we can be this worldly grief kind of person. I'm sorry that I got caught. I'm sorry that my sin hurt my spouse. I'm sorry that I have limited my ability to go forward in my career. I'm sorry that I'm bankrupt. I'm sorry for the pain that I'm now experiencing in my life because I got caught. That's not what godly grief is all about. Godly grief leads us to a place where we say it's not about how I've hurt somebody here. It's not about a future that I can fix if I just try hard. It's not about continuing to writhe again, even though life is hard. It's about me coming to this place where I go, okay, God, uh, I'm out of ideas. I'm done. I'm done. I am going to submit myself to your ways. And here, Paul outlines the seven responsibilities or the seven characteristics of true repentance, and he wants us to get them. So if you don't mind, we're jumping right in here. Verse 11, see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. There's an earnestness that comes when you and I truly repent of our sin. The word earnestness speaks about an eagerness in my heart to walk in the ways of righteousness. You remember uh, that the righteous will live by faith. Now, before we continue on, can I just tell you, Paul did not teach them and say, you know, these are the seven hallmarks of repentance. That's not what happened. Look Look at verse 11. For see. You see the word see there? Paul is saying... Titus observed these characteristics in your life and has reported them to me, and it's as if he's saying, take a look at this. This is what's going on in the life of the person who's actually repenting, or actually repented. This is the reality of what's taking place in your lives, Corinthians. And so I'm just reporting back to you the billboard that your lives are that uh, Titus saw when he came and visited you. And so one of the first things we see is that repentance is not something that I, I, uh, I go through because, uh, you know, people appealed to me enough and guilted me into it. Again, that's worldly grief. You're not jumping through hoops because the church tells you to jump through hoops. Repentance shows that the Holy Spirit is at work and alive in you. And one of the ways that we show that is this energy and eagerness for righteousness. The righteous will live by his faith. Eager to believe the word of God. Eager to know what the word of God says. Eager to take any and every issue of my life, and I'm no longer saying, I'm going to do this with my life, I'm going to go here with my life. My hands are open before a living God, and I'm saying, God, where do you want me to go with this life? 
I am, I am relinquishing control over to the ways of righteousness, whereas I used to be committed to going my own way. There's an earnestness that wasn't there before when we truly repent. Second hallmark, a desire to clear our names. Now, we can take that too far and it can be inappropriate, but the Corinthian people were saying, look, uh, where I can, I'm going to make things right. I'm going to, uh, in essence, kind of pay restitution. I'm going to set things aright where I can. If you have been a liar, you can go to the people you have lied to and ask their permission or their, their forgiveness. If you have been an extorter, you can go to the people that you've been stealing money from and pay it back. And so the whole idea is to, to come forth and say, look, as best we can, humanly speaking, uh, we want to clear our names. Well, the, the Corinthians here uh, wanted to uh, also put to rest some false accusations to refute, like, yeah, there, we were guilty in this area and that area and this area, but there are some things that you said that were not true of us. And so again, the public sin requires a public apology. And the financial sin requires a financial payback. And we do that without being coerced when the repentance is real. The third word he uses there is this indignation. This indignation, this, this, this boiling over sense in our own hearts. I cannot believe that I would be the kind of person after walking with God as long as I have who would still be committing that kind of sin. Brokenness. Can I just encourage you? Some of us get indignant over other people's sin really easily. Paul was not indignant over the Corinthians' sin. He appealed to them for their own good. But the Corinthians, when they were indignant, they were not indignant that Paul would, would confront them. They were not indignant that Paul wrote a letter. They could not believe they would be the kind of people who would sin like that. Hey, where, where are you in your indignation towards sin? At a place where you're looking internally for the purpose of repentance or at a place where you're looking externally for the purpose of maybe harsh treatment of others. And so he was indignant. They were indignant about their sin. Frustration, disappointment with my own sin. True repentance hates its own sin and turns from it to God. Uh, there's a fear. You see that as the fourth hallmark? This fear. And, and fear works in all of us in some ways. But as, he, as Paul left Corinth, the, the, people, the people of Corinth, the church was saying, we fear or we revere, we respect what this false teacher, this opponent of Paul is saying, and so we are going to go out from underneath the umbrella of God's word to the point where we are going to listen to this false teacher. And listen, in this world today, we are constantly in this battle of do we come back to the the straightforward umbrella of protection and authority of God that he's re revealed to us in his word, or do we listen to other voices who are doubting and trying to decay what the word says clearly to us? You're going you're gonna to fight that fight. We're all going to fight that fight the rest of our life. 
Are we going to stay under this umbrella of what God's word says clearly, or are we going to wander out? And, and Paul is saying one of the hallmarks of, of repentance is coming under the authority of God's word and, and holding to its, simple, its, its a clear teaching, uh, again, what we should believe about God and how we should behave before God, and we hold to it without, uh, without any kind of apology, and we fear the Lord, and we know that the culture around us and the teachers around us and the people around us, they all think we're crazy for staying under the umbrella protection of God's authority. And we say to them, you know, we love you and we're called to you and we, we want to help you with this, but we fear the Lord together. And that's where true repentance lives. A fear, not of person, but of God. And that fear, reverential awe that we could be the people that belong to such a good and loving God. There's a longing. Note this, that Paul confronted them. Yeah, I don't know if you've ever been confronted. You never had a hard situation, you know, and you're the person who's your boss had to say, well, actually, you know, you get a stinky ear, and here's why. And that can be awkward because they're being honest and telling you things. And, you know, for a while, the relationship's a little like, eh, I don't know. I've got to keep my distance from them because they think I'm, I'm bad at my job for a while. And so, so anytime there's any kind of, like, you know, confrontation, there can be difficulty. But note this. Paul proved himself loving when he confronted them. And look what happened. There was this longing that the Corinthian people, the church, they wanted Paul to come back. Because they left on harsh terms. And even though he confronted them, they loved him. And that is how it ought to work in the church. Can I just encourage you? The church cannot be a place where we all just kind of go through the motions and we all just say, you know, don't, don't judge me. Don't judge me. Just let me live how I want to live. Just let me do what I want to do. The whole point of 2 Corinthians is a man who loved the church so much that he wanted the word to be reigning over them. And once we come under the authority of God's word, yes, we don't want like uniformity. Everybody does it the exact same way. That's not what we're after. But we are after unity under the word of God. And so we're calling each other back to that place and we cannot be a place where God's name is lifted up and nobody ever challenges or holds accountable or encourages, it, encourages or even shows good judgment in the way that we interact with one another. The church has to be a place where we hold up the word and when we hold up the word, we necessarily challenge one another and we need to be challenged. Now, let me just say it bluntly. We need to invite people to judge us. Can I say that, that bluntly to you? A well, church should be a place where nobody gets judged. Mm. Judge yourself and uh, you will not incur strict judgment because you will have already done it. So I'm not saying we walk around constantly doing it. And actually, it's another good reminder that Paul rarely confronted the church. And when he did confront them, he confronted them with tears and weeping. And he longed to make it as as clear and simple and to the point as possible so he didn't have to do it anymore. Paul's not loving going around confronting everybody and telling them their sin. By the way, we're never, think about this statement. I read this a couple weeks ago and it's really been helpful for me. We're never more like Satan than when we accuse the saints. Think about that. That's what he does all day long. And so don't let that be your habit. But there will be moments when we need to challenge each other through tears 
and in love. There's a longing in relationship. There's a zeal. There's a zeal. So when you truly repent, you become this person who's like, you know what? I'm on it. I am going to, uh, to get involved so that the whole world can know some of the things that I'm finding about, out about how great God is. And so we get serving the Lord. And so uh, Titus brought back this news to Paul. He's like, hey, Corinth, they're going crazy at church. I mean, they, they, they care about each other, and there's love, and there's activity, and they're serving. And uh, there's this zeal that comes. Uh, a, a number that sticks in my heart today won't mean much to you when I say it, but I'll explain it. 33,749. 33,749. That's the amount of days that Nikki's grandma B strung together before Friday night. And Friday night, this 92, I'm probably wrong about that, but 92-ish year old woman went home to be with the Lord. And can I just tell you, she came to faith through a ministry called Friendship Bible Coffees, and then she went around the Midwest, and anyone who would listen, she would talk about her story. She would tell you this, so it's nothing that it's, she wouldn't say. If you come to the, uh, the funerals next Saturday, and if you're there, you, you could pick up, and if you don't want to go to the funeral, that's cool, but Nikki will have a, uh, uh, a copy of her story that she used to go around all through the Midwest and tell to everybody. And she continually had zeal for the Lord. That's a hallmark of true repentance, that we are on it together. That we are, we are focused on this fact that once we are following after Jesus, the main calling on our life is to make disciples of other people. And can I just put in a little, a little commercial? We are starting a ministry year this week, Tuesday and Wednesday, where we intend to make disciples of the little children and the young adults all throughout Sheboygan County. If, if, you have, if you are truly repentant and you're looking for a place to plug in and minister, our Awana ministry Wednesday night, 6.30, could use you. And uh, the, however many kids we have, 50% of them outside the church, 50% of those not in a church family, they're in a place where they don't know Jesus, they haven't heard about Jesus, they don't have a parent who teaches them about Jesus, and every Wednesday night they're coming here, 6.30, to give us the opportunity to tell them about who Jesus is and how much he loves them. And you don't have to be zealous for Awana. But my friends, if there is true repentance in your heart, you are zealous to tell the world of the greatness and beauty of the Savior who has come and changed everything about your life. Maybe that happens in the jails. Maybe that happens in your neighborhood. Maybe it happens at your profession. Maybe you're, uh, and by the way, teachers, God bless you, you're going back. Some of you, your ministry is is full force. Tuesday morning, 7 o'clock, you are locked in, you've got your seatbelt on, and you're ready for another year ministering to students. God bless you. We're looking forward. In a couple weeks, we're going to have our our Sunday when we pray for the teachers for the year. And man, that is going to be just a celebration because teachers are doing a great work. The zeal. The zeal. Uh, See what punishment. Do you see that there in verse 12? Um, excuse me, in verse 11, that's the last word he uses, punishment. He's in essence saying, look, I, uh, the, the Corinthians came to the place where they sinned, and they knew they sinned, and they weren't making excuses for it anymore, and whatever the consequences were for that sin, they were going to uh, bring them and, and embrace them and uh, not fight against them. Consequences for my sin? 
Not fighting against that. Yeah, I deserve that. Now, let me give you some examples of that. You may need to limit yourself in some area in your life because uh, of a sin that, that has you in its grip right now. And if you are just willing to take drastic steps in your life, you could today stop yourself from a sin that has been characterizing your life for a season. And all you have to do is be willing to take some bold step. Now, let me give you some bold step examples. Uh, pay the 400 bucks that you have to to pay off your smartphone and get rid of it tomorrow. Now, tomorrow's Labor Day. Get rid of it Tuesday morning if it's causing you to trip up in any way. That's, that's punishment. You can't have what some people can have if that thing is causing you to sin. Somebody in here needs to be willing to say, uh, that's where I'm going this week. I can't. For some of you, it's about money. For some of you, it's about something you watch on TV. For some of you, it's about some other kind of personal thing. But the reality is when, when uh, repentance is real, no one has to tell you to accept the punishment that you need to accept to get out from underneath the sin because Jesus is real to you. And you're changing your life by the fact that he's living in you. These are some of the hallmarks of true repentance. So here's the question that Paul would have for you and for me today. Worldly sorrow? Is that it for you? Feel bad, got caught, real hard, try harder? Or godly sorrow that is producing for you repentance and look, that repentance leads to salvation. That is the life that God promises when you walk with him. Underneath that umbrella we've been talking about, believing what he calls you to and behaving before him with integrity. Guys, the, the last few verses, we're out of time, but basically it talks about when we walk like this and live like this, man, the love that comes. We love each other so deeply. We've been through the hardship. We've been down on the battlefield. And joy and love comes in, in immeasurable amounts. When we come to this place, where we're like, look, I was down on the battlefield and God sent help. And the help was great news. God is still at work in this world. He is still changing people. He is still causing people to repent. Not worldly sorrow kind of repent, but godly sorrow kind of repent. He is doing his work in this world and you're a part of it. And I'm a part of it. By God's grace. My friends, God is strong. Set your mind on how God brings portable strength out to you on the battlefield so that you can help others get up and help others and serve the Lord. Let's be dismissed in prayer. Would you stand with me? Lord, would you help us today? I pray for that one who has been uh, struggling and uh, so far... Repentance, uh, it hasn't fully come. And this message this morning has revealed to them that uh, maybe they have been repenting, but it's time to take the next authentic step. And I pray they go to a friend, tell their story, ask for help, and that your spirit would help them have the kind of repentance that leads to the life you want them to have, salvation.
And so I commit all of us to you. Now we think about our Awana program. We think about our uh, student ministries program. We think about our Christian education program. And we are so thankful for the great privilege of being a lighthouse to Sheboygan County to call all people to come and to know Jesus and walk with him. In Jesus' name, amen.